In the many countries etched in the annals of Tanakh, including the sacred soil of Eretz Yisrael, the earth whispers secrets of the past. With each passing year, a breathtaking tapestry of hundreds of archaeological revelations continues to unfurl. These archaeological ventures bring to light artifacts of immense historical significance, many of them interwoven directly into the rich fabric of the Torah itself, while others illuminate diverse facets and epochs of biblical history. While we, with our unwavering faith, do not lean on archaeology as the pillar to validate the veracity of the Torah, after all, no archaeological discovery could ever cast in stone the ultimate proof of the Torah's truth, there is a resounding echo reverberating from the past 150 years or so of archaeological exploration. This echo harmonizes hundreds of unearthed relics and whispers in unison, a powerful testimony to the historical fidelity of our cherished version of the texts of Torah, Nevi'im and Kesuvim. As we delve into the depths of these ancient terrains, every discovery is like a cryptic letter, a clue that connects us back to our roots, reinforcing the timeless authenticity of our biblical narrative. Just this past December, we read reports of a revelation of monumental proportions that emerged in Israel. A Haifa University professor, Gershon Galil, who is an esteemed custodian of biblical studies and ancient history, bestowed on his find the title of one of the most important archaeological discoveries in Israel of all time. It is a tale of inscriptions of regal grandeur etched in stone, unveiling the remarkable reign of King Chizkiyot of Judah. The inscriptions bear witness to the resolute presence of King Chizkiyot, recounting the sagas of his illustrious first 17 years in power. Among the exploits unveiled, the inscriptions resound with the tale of a remarkable water project. They bear witness to the audacious endeavor of constructing the famed Siloam Tunnel, known in Hebrew as Shiloach, immortalizing King Chizkiyot's ambitious feat. The inscriptions also chronicle sweeping ritual reform, a transformation that reshaped the spiritual landscape of the kingdom. And of course, the conquest of the Philistines, a triumph that reverberated through the annals of history, which also finds its indelible mark within the archaeological discovery. Yet, these inscriptions offer more than mere accounts of victories and grand projects. They unfold the secrets of time, unraveling the enigma of chronology itself. For within their ancient strokes, they unveil the precise date when the water project reached its culmination, the second of Tammuz in the 17th year of Chizkiyot's reign, a date that transports us back to the year 709 BCE, which is over 2700 years ago. But today I'd like to focus on another archaeological find. It is one of the most remarkable archaeological discoveries of recent history, and it took place at Ketefinom, an archaeological site southwest of the old city of Jerusalem that was uncovered and explored in the 1970s. During excavations, a series of burial, burial chambers dating back to the 7th and 6th centuries BCE were uncovered, belonging to the Iron Age period. Included among the finds at this site were the Ketafinom scrolls, which are the oldest known surviving texts from the Torah, dating to 600 BCE, which is 2600 years ago. The Ketafinom scrolls are also known as the Ketafinom 
amulets. They are tiny silver scrolls that were found by the archaeologist Gabriel Barcai in 1979. He painstakingly unrolled them in a process that took him over three years. What he discovered was the text of a religious blessing that we are all extremely familiar with because it comes from Parshas Nosei, Bamidbar Perikvav, Psukim Chavdalet, Chavhe and Chavvav, and because we invoke it frequently as part of our daily Jewish lives. May God bless you and guard you. May God shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift his face up towards you and grant you peace. The discovery of these very ancient scrolls with these particular words is significant for several reasons. Firstly, they provide archaeological evidence of the existence of Judaism in ancient Israel. I know it sounds totally ridiculous, but there are actually people who deny the Jewish faith's ancient connection to the land of Israel. So the fact that these 2,600-year-old scrolls show that these Hebrew verses were part of the culture at the time of the first base Hamikdash speaks volumes. Secondly, the scrolls show that the Hebrew text of the Torah was not a later invention of the Second Temple period, but that it existed long before the return of Ezra and Nehemiah to the land of Israel from the Babylonian exile. This debunks another denial myth that is propagated by some scholars who claim that the Torah text was a later invention of a group they refer to as the scribes. And finally, the Ketev Hinnom scrolls provide an important proof of the ancient practice of writing and carrying religious texts as amulets for protection and blessing. In today's share, I would like to focus on these three psukim and the posset that comes before them, introducing the concept of what has come to be known as Birkas Kohanim, the priestly blessings, words that are seen as the ultimate form of blessing for the Jewish people, used as the formula for parents blessing their children every Friday night before making Kiddush. In fact, Birkas Kohanim is one of the most cherished passages of Parshas Nosa, and you could say of the whole Torah. This blessing was given by God as a formula to bless the Jewish people to Aaron Cohen and his sons, and it is structured into three distinct parts, as I've already mentioned. Yevarechecha Hashem v'yishmerecha. May Hashem bless you and guard you. Yare Hashem panavelecha v'chuneka. May God shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. Yisa Hashem panavelecha v'yasem lecha shalom. May God lift his face up towards you and grant you peace. Each of these three parts is significant in and of itself. The first part, Yevarechecha Hashem v'yishmerecha, is about material blessings. It is a prayer for prosperity and security in a person's physical, material life. The second part, Ya'er Hashem Panavelecha moves beyond physical needs. It is a request for spiritual illumination. It is a prayer for enlightenment, for wisdom, and for understanding. And it is an appeal for God to be gracious to us, to grant us more than we may deserve. The third part, Yisa Hashem Panav Elecha V'yasem Lecha Shalom is a request for shalom, usually translated as peace, but it means so much more. The Hebrew word shalom denotes completeness, harmony, 
tranquility. It is the ultimate blessing, the final destination of all our aspirations. The delivery of the Birkat Kohanim is as rich in symbolism as the words themselves. The Kohanim raise their hands, palms downward, fingers spread apart, <coughs> in a stance of humble channeling of divine energy. Their role is not of a giver, but of a conduit for God's blessings. This presents an interesting lesson for us. When we seek to bless others, we're merely channels of God's benevolence. This is why the halakha is that the Kohanim can only deliver the blessing while everyone who is being blessed bow their heads and avoid looking directly at the Kohanim. This is deliberate because we want to emphasize that the blessing is not from the Kohanim, but from Hashem. The Adaras Elio addresses an interesting question which folds into this idea as well. The question is this, it's so wonderful that the Kohanim are blessing the Jewish people, but what about them? How do the Kohanim get blessed? Who is going to give them a blessing? It's a good question, right? The Adaras Elio was Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad who was active in the 19th century and early 20th century. He is also known by the name of his main sefer, Ben Ishchai. He focuses on the pasuk just before the three-part Birkas Kohanim. Daber Laharon ve'elbanov le'mar, kosevarachu es b'nei Yisrael, omar Elohim. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, So shall you bless the children of Israel, say to them. The puzzling bit of that pasuk is the last two words, omar Elohim say to them. It sounds as if the Kohanim might be reluctant to give the blessing to the people and they needed a bit of extra encouragement. And maybe that was because the Kohanim would be resentful, seeing that they were blessing the Jewish people, but the Jewish people do not return the blessing to them. Therefore, says Rabbi Yosef Chaim, with these two words, the Posuk is hinting that this blessing with which they bless Israel is Omer Elohim. It will be said for them, and it is also relevant to them. How's that? He explains it beautifully. Since the Kohanim's livelihood is provided by the Jewish people, if a Yisrael who is a farmer sows his field and Hashem blesses him with a bountiful harvest, then automatically the Kohen also benefits because he receives more terumah and more maser. If the land produces 20 tons of wheat and the tithe is 10%, that means the Kohanim would get 2 tons. But if the harvest is 50 tons of wheat, then the Kohanim's share is 5 tons. The Jewish people's blessing is going to be a blessing for the Kohanim. The more crops they grow, the more the Kohanim get. God tells Moshe to reassure the Kohanim that the blessing will be for them too. I would also like to share with you a fascinating piece from the Sefer Eim HaMikra by Rav Elior Ben Amozeg, who was a 19th century Italian rabbi. I want to say just a few words about him first because he's not so widely known and there are those who say that he was very controversial. Rav Elior Ben Amozeg was one of the most famous Italian rabbis of his era, fiercely traditional, a fighter for Torah values and very committed to Shmiras HaMitzvahs. He was born and raised in Livorno, and from a young age was recognized for his deep piety and his devotion to learning. And later on, he was renowned for his knowledge in Jewish traditional sources, but also for his wide knowledge of philosophy and scientific literature. Nowadays, in the world of general Jewish scholarship, Rabbi Ben Amozeg is best known for his work Israel and Humanity, which was first pub published after he died in French and advocated the universal significance of Judaism. 
In fact, throughout his life, Rabbi Ben Amozeg maintained that Jewish tradition and the Torah had a significant role to play in the non-Jewish world in terms of the conversation about moral and ethical values. He also vigorously defended Kabbalah and the Zohar against the attacks of fellow Italian rabbi Shmuel David Luzzato. Rabbi Ben Amozeg definitely stirred up some controversy in his time. He was seen by some as too complimentary of Christians and not critical enough of the New Testament. But it doesn't mean his contributions to Jewish thought were dismissed as apicorsus, heresy, or as unquotable. His work and insights have been frequently referenced by great Darshonim and Tamide Chachomim, such as Rav Dovid Tzvi Hoffman and Rav Mendel Kasher. His book, in the Paths of Morality was published by Mossad Rav Kook, and his ideas feature prominently in Rav Avram Bick's anthology of Jewish thought, although Rav Bick, the brother of the famous New York Posek Rav Moshe Bick, was himself extremely controversial. He was a defender of communism. You can read about him in the afterword of my book Mavericks, Mystics and False Messiahs. Eim HaMikra is one of Rabbi Ben Amozeg's most notable works. It's a commentary on the Torah that looks to see if there is evidence of ideas that are found in the Torah and Halacha that have parallels in the non-Jewish world and what these parallels might mean, very similar to the ideas found in Rambam's Marinavuchim. And this is what Rabbi Ben Amozeg says in Eim HaMikra about Birkas Kahanim. We learn something very important from the very specific wording of the blessing of the Kohanim. Do you know what the lesson is? That it is not the way of the Torah to leave the observance of mitzvahs to the will or discretion of individuals to do as they please, but rather there is a right way of doing things and a wrong way. Just blessing the Jewish people with any words was not the mitzvah. Definitely not. Because a specific formula had to be used. Think about it. If this wasn't the case, there would be no need to specify how the Kohanim should bless the people, in what order and with what words. It would be enough just to command them to bless. And if in other commandments we do not find details and specifics from the mitzvah of Birkas Kohanim, we have proof that these specifics were handed down to Moshe and taught orally to the Jewish people from one generation to the next generation. And this is the mitzvah which proves that all mitzvahs were detailed and specific. Rabbi Ben Amozeg then says something incredible. He claims to have seen an ancient Egyptian idol which shows the Pharaoh being blessed by an Egyptian god. And the Egyptian god has both hands raised and fingers separated in a similar fashion to the posture of the Kohanim when they do the duchening. But in the Egyptian version, two fingers are out and two fingers are bent towards the palm, whereas the Kohanim stretch out all their fingers and divide the two outer fingers from the two middle fingers. Nonetheless, even though the way fingers are positioned during Birkas Kohanim is different than the Egyptian custom, the Egyptian effigy shows that finger and hand postures were present during the time of Moses as a designated way of showing that you were giving a blessing. And as the Rambam says, the customs of that time didn't disappear, but were employed and adapted for use in the Jewish rituals as part of our religion. Isn't that fascinating? The Imam Mikro cites various opinions regarding the manner of finger separation that Kohanim used for Brikas Kohanim. For example, the Mordechai suggests 
that the finger separation is based on specific Kabbalistic interpretations and letters, while the Shibboleth HaLeket associates it with a sign of awe and trembling in the presence of the Shekhinah. Rav Yitzhak Abuab's observation is that the Kohanim used their fingers to form the Hebrew letter Shin, which represents the divine name that begins with a Shin, Shin Dalad Yud. The Torah Tamima quotes a Chazal in Ksubus, Chavdalad Amad Beis, where it says, Zor Hanoise es Kapov over Baase, a non Kohen who duchens and does Birkas Kohenim, has transgressed a Torah commandment. Yichsiv Koisavarchu Atem Veloizorim. Because it says, so should you bless, you, the Kohanim, must bless, but not non-Kohanim. This is a prohibition derived from an ase, a positive commandment. The Torah Mima asks, so how is it that we have the customer's parents to put our hands on the heads of our children when we bless them? Surely that is reminiscent of Nesias Kapaim, of the Kohanim. Even using the formula meant for the Kohanim to bless us is problematic. How are we allowed to do what is meant just for the Kohanim? Shouldn't that also be forbidden? He mentions a story that he heard from what he says a reliable source. I heard from a trustworthy person, he writes, that the Gohan of Vilna blessed the great Rabbi Yecheskel Landau of Vilna at his wedding and placed just one hand on his head when he blessed him. When the Vilna Gohan was asked about this, he replied, we do not find giving a blessing with two hands except for the priests in the temple, which indicates that the Vilna Gohan was conscious of the fact that we mustn't bless others like the Kohanim. I'll come back to the Torah Tamim in a moment. First, let's take a look at the Gemara in Shabbos, Kufyut Ches Omud Beis, which presents an amazing anecdote about Rabbi Yossi, listing some of his pious practices, both in his religious and his interpersonal life. Among them is this one. Rabbi Yossi said, I never went against the words of my friends. I know that I'm not a Kohen, but if my friends told me, go up to the platform to Duchen for Brikas Kohanim, I would go up. This seems to directly contradict the Gemara in Ksubus, which restricts Birkas Kohanim to Kohanim only. It sounds like Rabbi Yossi was willing to go even further than parents who blessed their children, and he actually joined the Kohanim when they gave their blessing. Uh, and the question becomes even stronger when you see what Toysfus say. Rabbi Yossi did not know what pro prohibition there was to prevent a non-Kohen from joining them for the blessing. Except perhaps Brocha Levatola, because only the Kohanim were commanded to bless Israel, so only they can make the Brocha. But how can Toysfus say that? What about the Gomorrah Subas, which says that a Zar, an ordinary Israel, cannot do Birkas Kohanim? The remark in Darke Moshe, or Achaim Simenkuv Chavches, resolves the issue as follows. There is only a prohibition for non-Kohanim to make the blessing alone, without any Kohanim present. Joining Kohanim while they recite the blessing is not prohibited. Apparently, he sees this entire prohibition as forbidding a non-Kohen from blessing the people in a situation that would usually be reserved for a Kohen. Based on this, the Chassam Sofa explains that the requirement for a Kohen to go up to bless the people is only when he is directly called. However, if the call was Kohanim, in the plural, this does not constitute a direct personal call. It is therefore only prohibited for a non-Kohen to go up for Brikas Kohanim by himself, as he would then appear to be posing as an obligated Kohen. When the Chazan calls Kohanim, 
and a non-Kohen joins the responding group, the calling up is not directed at him, so it's okay. The Mogen Avraham provides a different explanation. He suggests that the issue with a non-Kohen participating in Birkat Kohanim is purely the recitation of an unnecessary blessing, bracha levatola, as Tosfas say. According to his view, Rabbi Yossi simply recited the actual Birkas Kohanim, the three psukim, without the preceding blessing, the brocha. The Eshkol even suggests that Rabbi Yossi would stand on the platform with the Kohanim, but not participate in Birkas Kohanim at all. He didn't say anything. The Mogen Avram implies that this prohibition of not saying the brocha constitutes a Do'araisa violation, a Torah violation, which is the same prohibition mentioned in the Gemara in Ksubis regarding the non-Kohen administering Birkas Kohanim. However, Tosfus in Rosh Hashanah, Daflamad Gimel Omadalaf, argue that intoning an unnecessary bracha is only forbidden Durabonon. Therefore, the Mogen Avram's position that an unnecessary blessing involves a biblical prohibition does not actually align with the Tosfus interpretation. Perhaps he's siding with the Rambam, who says in Hilchus Brochus that reciting an unnecessary bracha is considered saying God's name in vain, and it's even as bad as making an oath with God's name in vain, which seems to indicate that Rambam held it to be a Torah violation. Truthfully, though, the Mogen Avram cannot rely on the Rambam's ruling to support his view, as the Rambam categorizes the prohibition as a love, a negative commandment, not an isur asay, which is namely a prohibition derived from a positive commandment, which is mentioned in the Gemara for this isur, which is derived from, remember, the word koisavorchu being aimed at the Kohanim. The Balhafla of Pinchas Halevi Horowitz of Frankfurt offers a different solution. He cites the Sefer Haredim, who famously says that not only do the Kohanim fulfill a mitzvah when they bless the people, but the people also fulfill a mitzvah by receiving a blessing from the Kohanim. Based on this assertion, the Baal Hafla su suggests that a non-Kohen who does not stand in front of the Kohanim, but joins them up there while they are giving the blessing, is neglecting his own mitzvah, because he's not receiving the blessing from the Kohanim. While there is no prohibition against a non-Kohen blessing the people, it is prohibited to miss the blessing from the Kohanim when you are present, and they are giving it. The Pnei Yehoshua, Rav Yaakov Yeshua Falk, also of Frankfurt, although he was the rabbi there before the Baal Havla, presents a different approach. According to the Gemara in Soita Daf Lamed Ches so should you bless, specifically refers to the blessing in the Beis Hamikdash, where the full divine name, the Shem Hamafarash, was used. The Pnei Yeshua suggests that the prohibition for non-Kohanim only applies in the temple, where that unutterable name is used. In fact, he adds, there is actually a separate prohibition which forbids a non-Kohen from pronouncing the divine name explicitly, and this has nothing to do with Birkas Kohenim. The point he is making is that there is no temple in Jerusalem nowadays, and therefore no Birkas Kohenim ever happens in which any prohibition applies to a non-Kohen. The Pnei Yeshua's explanation, although accepted and adopted by Rav Yaakov Emden, is a minority opinion, not accepted by most other authorities, which explains why the Balhafla 
who came after them, both tried to come up with another explanation. In the first part of the Pnei Yeshua's explanation, he's assuming that Birkas Koenim outside the Beis HaMikdosh is only a rabbinic obligation, and no one agrees with that. The Mechaber of the Shulchan Aruch, who lived centuries earlier than the Pnei Yeshua, seems to assume that Birkas Kohanim is a biblical obligation, even nowadays, even though there is no Beis HaMikdosh. Maybe that's why the Pnei Yeshua offers the second part of his explanation, namely that a non-Kohen transgresses the prohibition if he pronounces the divine name explicitly, which a non-Kohen is not allowed to do. But he could say, Birkas Kohanim, pronouncing Hashem's name as the Aleph Dalad Nun Yud version. The Bach limits the prohibition against a non-Kohen doing Birkas Kohanim to a case where he lifts up his hands during the blessing, as the Kohanim do, as they administer Birkas Kohanim. The Torah says that Aaron lifted up his hands when he blessed the people, and this is an essential part of the blessing. It follows that a non-Kohen who does not raise his hands does not transgress any prohibition when he recites Birkas Kohanim. Since Rabbi Yossi did not lift his hands, he violated no prohibition. And maybe this is why the Vilna Gaon was reluctant to use both hands on the Chosen's head at Rabbi Landau's wedding. The Mishnah Baruch quotes the Mogen Geboirim as saying that only a non-Kohen who intends to fill, fulfill the mitzvah of Berikas Kohanim violates a prohibition by doing it. This would explain Rabbi Yossi's conduct. He only wanted to fulfill his friend's wishes, he said, not the mitzvah of Berikas Kohanim. But let's leave the last word to the Ramah. According to the Ramah, a non-Kohen should abstain from reciting Berikas Kohanim, even if the Kohanim invited him up to do it with them. As to the Torah Tamima questions about the widespread practice of non-Kohanim utilizing Birkas Kohanim as a blessing and even laying hands on the recipient's head, as well as the common practice of using the formula of Birkas Kohanim, especially while blessing children on Shabbos evenings, the Bir Halacha proposes that a non-Kohen only does something wrong when he says Birkas Kohanim within a prayer context. Any other setting is fine. Once Birkas Kohanim was specifically established within a prayer setting, anyone reciting the blessing at another time clearly has no intention to fulfill the Kohanim's mitzvah and is therefore not infringing any prohibition. I want to end with this story. It is a story handed down in my family about an ancestor of ours who lived about 200 years ago. He was a Kohen and he had 12 sons and 12 daughters. Obviously, all his sons were Kohanim. And his daughters also all married Kohanim. After they were all married, at the first Yom Tov, together with his 12 sons and his 12 Kohen sons-in-law, all of them though Kohanim, right? He went to the front of the shul with them and announced that they would now duchen and bless the congregation according to the posuk in the Torah. Koi sevorchu es Yisrael. Koi means so you shall, but it also made up of the letters Chof Hei, which combined to have the numerical value of 25. And he said, there are 25 of us from one family, all Kohanim, and we will all bless you, Koi Sevarchu, and then they duchend. May we all be blessed with the blessings of Hashem, as conveyed by the three psukim of Birkas Kohanim. Yuvarechacha Hashem, v'yishmerecha, may God bless you and guard you. Yo'er Hashem lecha v'chunecha, May God shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. Yisa Hashem Panov Eilecha Vyasim Lecha Shalom. May God lift 
his face up towards you and grant you peace. To those watching on YouTube, thank you for watching. To those listening on SoundCloud, thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you.